0: This message first aired on the radio on September 25th, 2003. Now, in the dispensation of law that we're taking up, we're in the period of the kingship of David, and in the period of David, we found that he is undergoing the rebellion promised to him because of the sin that he committed in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You may regard that yourself as the matter of Bathsheba, but do remember that he murdered Uriah. So, the Lord has said the sword would not depart from his house while he lived, and that he would have violence in his house, and sure enough, he did. One of his sons killed the other of his sons. We've got this first guy, Absalom. He's a problem. Amnon was a problem, got overwhelmed by his lust for his half-sister and forced her to lie with him, and then he was murdered in a conspiracy by his brother Absalom, and Absalom now became a usurper of David's throne, tried to push his father off the throne and started a rebellion. And all the children of Israel followed that rebellion. And you remember yesterday, maybe that we talked about the kind of guy Absalom was, you know, a pretty boy, great hair, nice car, guys that hung around him that told him he was a great thing, told everybody else, you know, he had a lot of PR people. Yet God had an issue with Absalom and David took his lumps like he should. And let me say now that when we talked a little bit yesterday about David going into the woodshed, and God keeps David in the woodshed for a long time and disciplines him for his sin in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And if you don't know the woodshed of God, then you don't know God treating you as a son. And that's something that you probably ought to figure out because that's what God does. It tells us in the book of Hebrews that God disciplines us so that we could be holy. I know today it's popular to speak wholeness. I don't even know what wholeness is by the way people talk about it, but I'll tell you what, it's never been popular, but it is God's desire to make us a holy people, a holy people. Now, maybe you think that holy means like Holy Joe, and you've got some bizarre idea about that that is unmanly or unwomanly or some kind of weird But God doesn't want us to be weird, and God didn't make us to be weird, but he did make us to be holy. What does holy mean? It means set apart and useful for himself, to be useful to God. So we read, for example, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives you say scourges well wow, that sounds very serious well it is serious god's a serious man he's a very serious person and he's serious about his chastening like you ought to be with your own children and he puts us under discipline if you endure chastening the bible says hebrews 12 verse 7 God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Answer that question implied. This is a rhetorical question. The answer is implied, and the answer is none. There's no son whom his father doesn't chasten. Now, of course, it turns out there really are these kind of sons. I think Absalom was a kid that never got a weapon. I don't think David certainly didn't give him enough weapons. You say, what's a weapon? A weapon's a beating. And that's what a scourging is. And young fellows need them. And fathers need to deliver them. That's part of being a father. In fact, the Bible says if a son is without chastisement, he's like a child born out of wedlock, some child who has no father. So if you're not scourging your son, if you're not chastening your son, if you're not giving your son spankings as he grows and other forms of serious discipline, then you're treating him as if he's not your son. You, Of course, the Bible says you hate him. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. This is one of the reasons why it's hard to understand the Bible these days. You read a section of the Bible that assumes that there's ordinary living. Further, we have, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. And people say, well, what does that mean a father corrects his son? What does that mean to give reverence to a father? They see because we're out of practice. Shall we not much rather be in subjection of the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, that is God, for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So there we are. That's the reason. He does it for our profit. Our fathers did it for their pleasure. And we wonder maybe if it was profitable or not. They did it after their own ideas. But God does it for our profit. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous, but nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are so exercised. And this is what's happening with David now. He's being exercised in God's discipline. And then the Bible exhorts us, Therefore lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And here the idea is orthopedic. The idea is orthopedic, let your foot be straightened, let your way be straightened, orthotomeo. That's what God wants to do. He wants to straighten our paths, and that's what he does here with David. David's walking a crooked path, and the Lord decides to straighten him out by bringing this discipline in kind to his family, and he suffers the rebellion of his own son Absalom. First, the failure of Amnon, now this wicked Absalom, pretty boy. And, of course, then David now. We have a lot of things going on, and we're trying to avoid taking up a deep, a detailed uh, discussion of the life of David so that we can move along in the broad overview of the dispensation. But David's also finding out quite a bit about Joab and others in these rebellions. And you remember where we left off maybe yesterday, that David knew having... Hushai the Archite, having served David, and God having brought his influence into the scene, that Absalom listened to Hushai the Archite and the men around Absalom instead of Ahithophel. Ahithophel knew his counsel wasn't listened to, went and killed himself. He knew he was not going to be satisfied with his vengeance upon David for what he did to his granddaughter Bathsheba and his grandson-in-law. And so he killed himself, We talked about that. Now Absalom. Absalom's going to come after David, but David's had a chance to organize himself, and really David now gets to pick the time and the place of the fight. David has the home field advantage. That's a big advantage. Home field advantage. If you want to beat the big boys, you play them on your own field with your own crowd. You play them at night on grass. That's what you do. Let's just say, for example, that you are uh, the University of Southern Mississippi. What you'd want to do is play a team like Nebraska at night on your own field. You'd want that field to be grass, and you don't want the game to be under the lights. So that's what you arrange if you can. Now, David, of course, realizes that he's going to defeat Absalom, so he gives an order to his people. And the order of his people is to not kill Absalom. I'll read it here. We're in 2 Samuel 18. David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. Now, he's got very senior leadership here. He's got experienced hands leading his men, and they're certainly able to outfox Absalom. Absalom made Amasa the captain of the host, his host, And whereas Amasa has experience, we find out that he's not cunning like Joab, he's not tough like Ittai the Gittite, and uh, he's not even as rough a fellow and clever a fellow as Abishai, Joab's brother. But the people answered and said to David, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Even if half of us die, will they care for us. But now you are worth ten thousand of us, Therefore now it is better that you succor us out of the city, that you come out of the city, they say, after we return. So the king said unto them, What seems you best, I will do. And here's what they're telling, and they're saying, Look, David, don't lead us out, because this is not going to be a normal battle. When they see you, everybody will attack you. They could care less if they defeat us or not. All they want to do is slay you. That's it. So don't come out on this one. David says, Okay, I won't come out on this one. And then King David commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, the three commanders. And he said, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. Now it turns out that they picked a wooded place and that therefore they, because the battle was engaged in a wooded place, it tells us that the wood devoured more people than the sword did. So that neutralized the advanced numbers that Absalom had. Now it became a matter of command. And if you know warfare, you realize that the strategy and the discipline of the command, that's almost everything in a battle. And we're going to come back and find out how the battle goes in just a minute, but it doesn't go well for Absalom. And we'll come back after this brief announcement. Now, Joab is Joab, and Absalom's Absalom, and so the two of them are going to have their problem. Absalom, his problem is he runs into a tree, and his head sticks in the bow. Now, a legend has it that his hair stuck in the branches, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between heaven and earth, and the mule was under him and went away. We could say he's a wedgehead. This guy's head wedged in a branch. Okay, maybe you say that's funny, but it's got to be painful. I mean, can you imagine? So his head stuck. You can see him there kicking his feet. And a certain man saw it, and he stuck there and told Joab. And he said, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak, Second Samuel 18.10. Of course, cursed is any man who hangs in a tree. I guess that means alive or dead. And Joab said to the man, Behold, why didn't you smite him there to the ground? I would have given you some money for it. The man said, I don't care if you'd have given me a thousand shekels. I heard the word of the king, and he charged you and Abishai and Ittai the Gittite and said, don't touch Absalom. And Joab said, well, I don't have time to talk about it with you. And he went out, and he threw three piercing devices called darts, not really darts, sort of like maces or something like that. Anyway, they killed Absalom. He threw three of them at him. Right through the heart of Absalom. Killed him in cold blood, really. And this is the thing about uh, Joab. He kills men in cold blood under the guise of battle. But he's a cold-blooded killer. And a soldier is not a cold-blooded killer. A soldier is a soldier. And he conducts himself in warfare. But Joab is a cold-blooded killer. This isn't the last time he's going to kill somebody in cold blood. But you remember, David is compromised on Joab, or was, because Joab was his accomplice in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Then, of course, Joab uh, had the audacity to even go out with the ten men that bore his armor. You see, he's building himself up. He doesn't just have an armor bearer. He's got ten armor bearers, at least, And they all beat up and kill Absalom. I'm sure it was a real mess. And then they threw Absalom into a pit in the woods and threw a pile of stones on him. And then it said, all Israel fled everyone to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and reared up to himself a pillar, which is in the Kingsdale, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. Isn't that what people do? They raise up some edifice and name it after themselves. The Bible says people do that. They do do that. Absalom did that. So it's interesting. He started out by raising up a pillar to himself, and he ended up under a rock pile. My friend, maybe you're one who raises up pillars to himself. Maybe that you're looking for a way to be remembered. Uh, let me assure you uh, that you'll end up some under some rock pile somewhere. That's the way you end. That's the end of all men. If you want to do something to be remembered, do it before God. Be remembered by God who raises the dead. Well, now we see the kind of guy Joab is. We see that the problem of Absalom has certainly been taken care of. And when David hears it, he says, My son Absalom, I would that I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son. And he's mourning, and you see it in 2 Samuel 18, and you have to feel for David think if you're a normal human being, you feel for David. Now he's lost another son. He's lost it because of his own behavior, his omission, his commission. And Joab comes to David while he's weeping. They tell him, Behold, the king weeps and mourns for Absalom. And Joab, pretty upset with David, kind of gets into his face a little bit in 2 Samuel 19.5. He said, You have shamed this day the faces of your servants, which this day have saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and we had all died this day, it would have made you happy or pleased you well. And he advises David, Now therefore arise, go forth and speak comfortably to thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be worse unto you than all the evil that befell you from your youth until now. So David goes out and sits in the gate and talks to the people. And he has to overcome his grief about Absalom. But he knows about Joab And one of the things that David does besides talk to the people and listen to Joab's advice is he replaces Joab. In fact, he says to Amasa, who was the commander of Absalom's forces, sends the priest to talk to Amasa, and he said, are you not of my bone and of my flesh? In fact, Amasa is Absalom's cousin, and he is... Therefore, David's nephew. So he says to the priest, go and tell him this for me. Are you not of my bone or of my flesh? God, do so to me. And more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in place of Joab. So David finally decides to replace Joab. Then the king returned, came to Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal, the whole tribe, to meet the king and to conduct him over Jordan And now David comes back victorious over Absalom. And so we see the revisiting of some of these guys that uh, came out and saw him on the way out. One of the first guys we see is Shimei, that fellow who was throwing rocks at him. You remember Shimei came out, called David a son of Belial or man of Belial, called him a bloody man, threw rocks and dirt at David and others. He's the one that Abishai said, Why should we let this dead dog curse the king? How about I go over and take off his head? Well, here comes Shimei now, Uh, son of Gera, Benjamite, which was of Baharim, hastened and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. thousand. First he came out alone. Now he comes with a thousand guys. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, you remember Ziba, he came out and complained about Mephibosheth and David gave him all a Mephibosheth's inheritance. And Shimei the son of Gareth fell down before the king as he was come over to Jordan. He said to the king, Let not my lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take this to his heart. Hey, David, don't take it seriously. I was just kidding. That's what he must be saying here. For thy servant know that I have sinned, therefore I am... Come the first this day of all the house of Joseph. He says, I'm the first guy of all of those who weren't with you to come out and meet you. You remember Abishai. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? See here, Abishai, he remembers, and he still you can see his hand gripping his sword. He's still eager to lift off this guy's head. And David said, what should I have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be adversaries unto me? Shall there any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do I not know that I am king this day over all of Israel? So the king said to Shimei, thou shalt not die. And the king swore that to him. So David is not going to kill Shimei. He gives him a reprieve. And he's not going to punish Mephibosheth. But... He's going to remember them. They'll have their day under Solomon. Well, you'd think now David has overcome this problem of the rebellion of Absalom. How could it get any worse? But he no sooner comes back into power, and shortly thereafter, it tells us in 2 Samuel 20, there happened to be a man of Belial, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri of Benjamite. He blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, neither have we any inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel went up from after David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. So here are all these fellows that followed Absalom, and they come back to David, and he unites them momentarily, Judah and Israel. It says, the men of Judah clave unto their king from Jordan to Jerusalem, but all these guys go follow after. Who's this guy? Some son of Belial? Some man of Belial? What does a man of Belial mean? That means a man after the evil one. That's what that means. A liar following after Satan. Some son of the devil, really. There are children of the devil. This is one of them. A Benjamite. See, Benjamin and Dan, they're just trouble, you know. That's just the way they are. Saul came out of Benjamin. Saul of Kish came out of Benjamin. So did Saul of Tarsus, remember. And, and the problem with Benjamin is it's right next to Judah and its inheritance. Judah and Benjamin are near neighbors. In fact, they're absolute neighbors, as the inheritance was laid out to the children of Israel. In fact, not only are they near neighbors... But as you look at the division of the land to the tribes, Jerusalem was divided between Benjamin and Judah. Right smack down the middle of the temple site, I believe, Benjamin and Judah share a border there. They just can't seem to get along. And, of course, Judah was promised the rulership, so Benjamin should yield as a tribe. But they had Saul, they got the man after their own heart, and they lived like so many do to return to the glory days. And every guy has his little idea about it. Mephibosheth has his idea. Here this son of Belial, Sheba, the son of Bickery, he's got his idea about it. Now this is a brief statement in the scripture. But while it's a brief statement, it's a serious problem. So David has appointed uh, Amasa to be the head of his troops, So he comes to Amasa, and he says, Assemble the men of Judah within three days, and you come with them. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah. Now this is to put down this rebellion. But he tarried longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now the Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than did Absalom. You take the Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get him fenced cities and escape us. So here, Amasa is a little delayed, and so David gets nervous. He says, Look, we can't wait. When Absalom waited for David to get established, it was a lot, it was a big problem. In fact, David overcame him. David's not going to make the same mistake. So Amasa didn't get the men assembled quickly enough, so David turned to Abishai, and he said, You go get him and move now. Now, you remember, Abishai is the son of the brother of Joab. So there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them. So he got his ducks in order. He got things together. He shows up, and Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him. Yeah, he's got the garments of the captain of the host. He's the new captain. And Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. Betrayest thou your friend with a kiss? But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. And here's Joab's favorite deal. He smote him therewith in the fifth rib, just like he did to Abner the son of Ner, and shed out his bowels on the ground and struck him not again, and he died. So Joab and Abishai his brother pursued after Sheba the son of Bichri. That's what Joab did. He murdered Amasa now in cold blood. There's another one. And you, you start seeing what Joab does. Joab's agenda, if God's agenda matches Joab's agenda, then Joab's fine with it. But when God's agenda, in this case David's agenda, which is God's agenda, when it doesn't match his own ambition, then he countervenes. He's not a man after God's own heart. He's a man after his own willfulness. And finally, ultimately, it shows up. So whatever was good for Joab, Joab did. And if that was also good for God, then he did that. But here you see, in this matter of Amasa, he's uh, he's adding to his demerits. He's becoming infamous now. And David is on to him, and he knows David's on to him because, after all, David replaced him well we're going to see now this is a rebellion of sheba uh, the son of bickery is put down and you'd think that it was all over with and that david now he survived a couple of rebellions you think it'd be over with but in fact there's a whole nother set of problems for david coming up and we're going to look at those when we come back in just a minute <music> Okay, well, we're looking at David, and David has fellowship with God. But it looks like some of the guys around him don't, especially this fellow Joab. And so we see that Joab has disqualified him, so we see he's a disqualified fellow. Now, that is an important principle of Scripture to look at. There are disqualified fellows wandering around in the household of God. And the Bible tells us to take note, take note of those whose faith we can follow And take note of guys like Joab and avoid them. Don't be like them, and in fact, don't associate with them and avoid them. Wicked fellow that Joab is. But there are other men less apparent than Joab. And sometimes the real apparent fellow is the wicked fellow. I've just come off some months of coming to terms with others. I had known this fellow uh, many years ago, a wicked fellow leading many churches astray, many, maybe 20, 30 churches, or called themselves churches, and only comes into public disgrace late in life, but acted wickedly uh, for years and years. This kind of thing does happen, and here is a guy, Joab, uh, leader of the host, wicked guy, and he was known, it was known. Finally, David does something about it, and Joab asserts himself and kills the man that David replaces him with. But there were others who were not so disqualified, and they're the mighty men of David. And these mighty men of David become known. We won't go through all of them. We won't try to name them all. But Hushai the Archite is one. Itai the Gittite is one. Benaiah is one. And there are many others. At some point, we'll maybe take that subject up. But for now, we're just going to skip through the section of scriptures that talk about these qualified men. David continues to consolidate his empire. He has to put down these rebellions among his own people, but don't forget there's an enemy to fight. Uh, He can't just be caught up only with these fellows like Sheba, the son of Bichri. He's got to deal with the enemies of the children of Israel, and despite the fact that Sheba, the son of Bichri, is a rebel, the Philistines are the bigger problem to the nation. Well, the people tire of him when David puts a siege on uh, the Benjamites and the Ephraimites who are following this fellow Sheba. When he lays a siege to their town, they throw his head out over the wall, and that's the end of him, and that's the end of that rebellion. Well, there's many other details that we could look at, but we'll just pass through, and we'll point out that David had to fight the Philistines. That's, after all, the work that was left that was never done by, by the judges, By the children of Israel, they never put their enemies out. They never finished off the Philistines. So it tells us in, for example, in 2 Samuel 21, the Philistines yet had war with Israel again. And David went down his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. Now he's getting to be an old man. He's about 60 years old. Okay, I don't want to say 60-year-old guy's an old guy. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that because that's the direction I'm headed. But pretty soon, you keep talking about young fella, and I'm a young guy, and you look at yourself, and you're not a young guy. You've got 16, 18 grandkids, however you want to count them. And you're in your 50s, and you're looking right at 60. I mean, as soon as you're 51, you're looking at 60. Those of you that are in your 40s uh, should begin to get some inclination that that next 10 years flies by. David's 60, and He's tired. As says he waxes faint. It's good for a man to bear the burden in his youth. If you do that, if you bear the burden in your youth, you might not have to bear it all in your old age. Maybe there'll be some around you that can do some of the fighting. David had some to fight for him. And it's a good thing because there's this fellow, Ishni Benob, who was of the sons of the Rapha, just like Goliath was. And Abishai, Joab's brother, the son of Zeruiah. Smote this Philistine, Ishni and killed him. There were others. There was Saph. Saph was one of the sons of Rapha, or one of the offspring of the Rapha, and Sibekai the Hushethite slayed him. There was another who was of the Rapha, whose spear was like a weaver's beam, and Elhanan the son of Jara oregim a man of Judah from Bethlehem, he slayed him. And then there was another one, another of the Rapha, of great stature, had uh, six fingers on each hand, had six toes on every foot. And he was also uh, of the Rapha, the giant. And it tells us that when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. That's Second Samuel twenty-one, twenty-two. So you see, men around David, these are the in distress, in debt, depressed fellows who came to David and who fought with him and who learned from him and now became able to replicate his mighty deed of the killing of Goliath. And here David maybe is a good example of the scripture which teaches us in the spiritual war that the things which we have heard among many witnesses commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And now David gives praise to God as he's toward the end of his life. And in Second Samuel 22 and 23 are his last words. He does have some time left, but there's some great poetry there where he gives praise to God. Well worth reading, but we're not going to do it today because we want to come now to where David appoints his mighty men, and he names fellows that you don't ever hear of as the top men. And that's the wonderful thing about the grace of God. My friend, maybe you labor in an unapparent way. Maybe you are unable to make any kind of a splash that you'd hope to make with God's people or the lost. But God knows your efforts. God knows your work. And God knew the work of these fellows, such as Josheb-Basabet the Tacmanite, and he knows Eliezer the son of Dodo the Ahohite, and he knows Adino the Esnite, and he knows you too. You don't hear about these fellows, but these are the mighty men of David. These are the ones who received the top places. You remember the mother of James and John, the boy that uh, came to the Lord and said, I want my sons to have the positions on your right hand and on your left. And he asked them, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? In other words, are you able to go the way of the cross like I am? They said, We are. And he said, Well, my father will give the right positions to the right guys, but, you know, they're candidates. And that's a time coming, the time of his reward. When he comes back, his reward will be in his hand. His reward is with him. And today, we ought to look at this world as for what it's worth, temporary, not worth very much, and look forward to the rewards that the Lord has. After all, after all, they that come to God must believe that he is first and also that he's the rewarder. Of them that diligently seek him. Well, David runs into some worse trouble. In fact, the worst problem he has, maybe in his whole life, he runs into when the devil moves against him and tempts him, and he falls and he begins to number the children of Israel. It says in 2 Samuel 24-1, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go and number Israel and Judah. But we find out in the book of Chronicles that it was Satan that stood up against David and against Israel and moved him to do this thing, and God allowed it. And so that's God's effort. Satan can't do anything God doesn't allow, and God allowed it. And David told Joab, who's now again the captain of the host, because he killed Amasa, and David let him in. And he said, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, number the people, that I may know the number of the people. Even Joab knew that that was a wrong thing to do. He said, Why do you delight in this thing? Notwithstanding the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host, they were all against it, David becoming his willful self. And he begins to number the people, and God now jumps in, First, David's heart smote him, it says in Second 2 Samuel 24.10, that he had numbered the people. After all, he was not to do that. I think he was trying to find out if they numbered like the sands of the sea or the stars of the heavens, but God had not done that yet. And here David was apparently lifting himself up a little bit. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that what I have done. Now I beseech you, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant." for I've done very foolishly. And that's what David is. That's David, a man after God's own heart. When he does evil, he admits it, and he abandons it. And so here he repents again, but again there's a consequence. And the Lord says, sends to him a prophet, so-called a seer, Gad the seer, who comes to David and said, the Lord's given you three options. Pick one. This to test David. Shall seven years of famine come unto the land? Will you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue... Or will you have three days' pestilence in the land? Now advise and see what answer I return to God who sent me. And David said, I don't want to be in the hands of men. Keep me from that. I'll take the pestilence, door number three. May God bless you, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.